Hello, and welcome back to Rewildology, where we explore conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and world traveler. There are defining moments in our life that completely change our trajectory. We're firmly set on one path, ready to give it our all, and then something happens that sends us hurling in a new direction. It frightens us, exhilarates us, and when we look back, it's hard to picture the present day without that moment. Kathleen Khalil, PhD, has had many of these moments. The daughter of immigrants, Kathleen's childhood was different than most children in the U.S. In this episode, we explore her experiences growing up in an all-white community, how she discovered her love for wildlife conservation through her many summers at the Oregon Zoo, and how she gained her parents' approval for pursuing a path in conservation. Kathleen's PhD research and career are as fascinating as they are important for furthering the conservation education field, and I've provided links to her work in the show notes at Rebiology.com. She also gives great advice throughout the entire conversation for anyone considering a PhD and those of you that might be struggling with depression. I came out of this conversation with lots of questions that I'm still reflecting on and sorting through, like what does it mean to be an American? How am I using empathy in everything I do? And most importantly, how do I make this industry relevant to everyone so that our work is valued to those outside of our field? I know none of us want to be crushed when another world event occurs. So what do we do about that? Kathy Yoon gives her thoughts on these issues, and I'd love to hear your ideas too. Message me on Instagram or LinkedIn at Rewildology or email at hello at Rewildology.com. Don't forget to subscribe and review wherever you're listening. Sharing is the best way to help the show grow, and I know I couldn't do it without every single one of you. And now, on to my conversation with Kathy Yoon. Well, if that's the case, then let's just dabble on in. (laughs) Yep. All right. Sounds good. Kathy Yoon, I would love, let's just start out, like just introduce who you are and what you do and Mm -hmm. just why you're so amazing. And then we will go from there. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, my name is Kathy Yoon Khalil. I am currently the director of engagement for a group called Zoo Advisors, but I'm a lifelong, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, a lifelong zoo and aquarium professional. I'm an educator by training, a conservationist, a social scientist, and just an enthusiast about all of the people and places that are working to save animals. Awesome. That was like the perfect elevator pitch. I love it. Like, this is who I am in one paragraph. Awesome. So when when we were chatting, when we first were starting to get to know each other, you started to open up to me about the household that you grew up in. Mm -hmm. I would love to explore that. Let's go back to your childhood and where you grew up, what it was like, and your very unique situation about your household that you grew up in. So yeah, go go ahead. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So I grew up right here in Portland, Oregon in the West, not even the West Hills, but like West of the West Hills in farm country. So I grew up on a 20 acre Christmas tree farm, defunct Christmas tree farm. My parents are immigrants. My mom immigrated from Iran. My dad immigrated from Pakistan, although he was born in India. And they met in graduate school and through a series of events, ended up in Oregon. And I'm the first of two. I have a younger brother as well. And so we grew up in this pretty idyllic 
spot. We were very, there are only a hundred kids at my elementary school, even though it's a public elementary school. In some ways it was odd because we didn't have a neighborhood or like you couldn't walk down the street to go meet anybody. Everything had to be facilitated through driving places and, and things like that. But we also had 20 acres of explorable wow. land that we could just go into. <laughs> yeah. That we could just go out and create worlds. Right. And so I spent a lot of my childhood outside, either by myself, with my brother, with my friends, just exploring, creating, you know, imagination situations about the small girls who lived in the forest who wanted me to be their friend. And so they were leaving me tokens and I'd make them tokens back <laughs> out of pine cones. And, you know, I developed an interest in, in mushrooms and fungi and, and dreamed of maybe being a mycologist someday. Just really, you know, spending as much time in the outdoors as humanly possible and, and never really being bored because there was so much to do. But on the other hand, you know, I grew up in this family. My dad is a climate scientist. So there is some environmental uh, stuff there, but largely grew up in this family where the expectation was to go into law or medicine or engineering, all great professions. And I, of the three of those, chose law, being an extrovert and a, a, as I was told, a chatty <laughs> child. I thought that that might be a, a good use of my skills. So up until I was 16, I was pretty sure I was going to be a lawyer. But we can talk about why that changed and how. But it was definitely, you know, school was very important to my family. They came to America to go to school. They wanted us to have the best education possible. And so we were pushed very, very hard to achieve in all the traditional senses. Mm. Wow. And I was just curious, I, I wrote down this question and if they didn't, that's totally fine. But what was it like for your parents to immigrate here? Challenging in some ways. And, you know, that's that's a perspective that they have alone, that they alone can answer that I only know bits and pieces of. My mom came before the revolution and imagined returning back to Iran after her PhD and was never able to. So you can imagine the trauma that might be associated with leaving home and never being able to go back or, or having the home that you once knew become very different from what ended up what ended up, you know, what it ended up turning into. And so she has a very unique perspective. She's still a, a very, you know, proud Iranian woman and, and speaks Farsi with all of her family. And, and then she met and married my father, who moved here when he was 13, because his father, my grandfather, was getting his PhD in forestry at University of Minnesota. So my grandfather um, worked as a silviculturist in Punjab in India and has, you know, there's this crazy family story of him killing a tiger as like a rite of passage what? into the forest service, you know, and, and, and just a totally different time, right? And my dad growing up in Bangladesh and Pakistan and in these deep, you know, rainforest tropical areas and then moving to Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota <laughs> into on-campus housing when he was 13. And so he ended up, my, my, my dad's side of the family ended up in Canada, as many uh, Indian Pakistani people often do. And my mom's side of the family ended up all over the place. I have aunts in America. I have an aunt in America. I have an uncle in Iran. I have an aunt in Switzerland. My grandparents stayed in Iran until they died. But my parents really struggled to 
stay in America. If, for them, if they weren't going to be in their home countries, they wanted to be here. And that was tough. My dad has two PhDs because that's what it took two. to get people to. Two. So, and my mom has one. <laughs> but, you know, they face an incredible amount of discrimination, incredible amount of hate and intolerance. But, you know, ended up, I hope, finding a community and a life here that they loved. And I'm really, you know, obviously incredibly thankful that they made those sacrifices and ended up in such a beautiful place like Portland. I always feel really proud to have a hometown that I couldn't wait to move back to. Mm. Wow. Yes. Thanks for sharing that. Because I just feel like the more that gets talked about, about people's just what Mm -hmm. they've had to go through just to make it here. And when you told Mm -hmm. me about that, when, when we were getting to know each other on our call, I, I wanted that moment to talk about that, to see what they went through. I mean, two PhDs, yeah. that's absolutely insane just for him to earn respect yeah. in his field. Like, one is mm-hmm. plenty. And get a job. <laughs> yeah, just get a job. Right, and get a job. I, yeah. I mean, his first PhD was in theoretical physics at the University of Texas at Austin. So really strong area, really good school but couldn't get a job. And so they went back up to Canada to because their visas were up and applied. And he ended up meeting a man that I consider to be one of my, you know, my godfather, Rye Rasmussen, the late Rye Rasmussen. And he offered my dad a, an opportunity to come study climate science. And mm. so that was, he swore it was the way of the future. And was right. Was right. <laughs> in in a lot of ways. Yeah. So he my dad pivoted. I mean, he still did physics, but he he pivoted from physics to in, you know, particle atmospheric physics, or mm. I don't fully understand. He's a very, very brilliant <laughs> man. But yeah, it's I could old having done the one PhD, I'm done. <laughs> like I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have not done. A PhD, like I've done a master's, which you happen to be intimately close with my master's program, which is so fun. It's just how Mm -hmm. lives intertwine is just incredible. But no, that's that's amazing. And again, you don't have to answer this if you're not comfortable. But did did you experience anything like that? Having immigrant parents or Um, were you pretty indoctrinated into like the U.S. way of things? It's so hard because my parents, because of what they went through, they tried to raise us to be no different from other children, right? And so I think you'll hear this from a lot of immigrant, like first generation born in the US folks is that the assimilation ended up kind of drowning out some of our own culture. So on the one hand, like they Mm, succeeded in some ways of helping us assimilate. We got to do soccer practice and dance and you know, whatever. But at the same time, like, what were the things from their culture that they gave up so that we could be assimilated? And how successful really was that, right? My name is Kathy Yoon. Like, uh, immediately upon hearing my name, you know that I'm not the same, which is fun, which is great. Like, I would not, I don't actually go by anything shorter anymore because of that, mm. because I want people to know, I don't want to, I don't want to um, whitewash my name. Did you used to go and, by a different name? And then I, all through high school, up until, up through high school, I went by Kathy, which is, it it was kind of put on me. Like I never chose that. And then when I went to college, I chose Kat and I still have close friends who call me Kat or Kath. And that's totally fine. I love, I love that we have that familiarity, but professionally now I, I, 
I'm very quick to correct everyone and make sure that they know my full name Good. Is, is, my, is my first name. Good. Yes. Yeah. Good. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but then on the other, you know, like on the other side of things, you know, I always knew growing up that we lived, we were different, right? I mean, our community of 100, 150 kids, we were the only not white kids in the entire community. I remember when I was in fifth grade, a black girl moved to our community and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like a Singaporean girl wow. moved there and I was like, tell me everything, <laughs> you know, but everyone was white. And so like sitting around the lunch table, it was like, you know, Tracy has Lunchables, Claire has Oreos, like, you know, like Danimals, all these like, you know, brands of the 90s, 90s, yeah. And I had chicken curry and basmati rice in a little canister, you know, or like my friends would come over and they would always say, your house smells like curry. And they didn't mean it in a bad way, but it was like, you know, it was just different. And the music we listened to is different. And every Sunday, we didn't go to church. Every Sunday was call every single person in the family day because that's when the rates were oh, cheapest really? for international calling. Yeah. So it was like, wake up in the morning, the Iranian program is on KBU. And so we would listen to that. And then we would call like the phone would be like loud Urdu or Parsi happening throughout the house all day long. <laughs> um, those are our Sundays, right? And so there are just a lot of differences like that, that I'm still, you know, remembering or trying to reconcile or think about. I mean, my parents my dad's learned English alongside Urdu, but my mom speaks English as a second language. And a lot of the phrases that I use or, or things like that were wrong for a really long time because no one, you know, like they taught me their interpretation of it. So, wow. yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing that. It's because we all have just such different life experiences and you have such a unique one. And I really, I wanted to make sure you yeah. had a moment to talk about it, to educate us on what it was like for you growing up. Well, and I think, I think another, I mean, there's all these layers that I unpack and, and think about all the time. One of them was this idea of being American, right? That I would have white friends who, especially when the administration, you know, even into adult, into adulthood, like when the administrations weren't the ones they wanted, they would say like, oh, well, I'm not proud to be, I'm, I am ashamed to be an American or I'm ashamed of our country or blah, blah, blah. And it, those phrases like hit me so hard. And I realized it was because my parents gave up so much of their lives, like gave up so much of their identity to come here and be here. And part of that was that not everything's going to be perfect all the time. Right. But they understand that the no country is perfect. But that sacrifice, it felt like such privilege mm. to be able to say, like, I'm ashamed of being an American when, like, your family didn't have to sacrifice what my family sacrificed to be here. Like, how can you say such a thing? Right. Like, <laughs> well, you yeah. just think about, oh, think about yeah. it, right? Like, th think about your privilege when you say something like that, that, like, yes, dissension is healthy. Being skeptical of government decisions is absolutely how democracy works. But like the privilege of being able to go to another white country and pass as white is not light. It's not a light mm -hmm. issue. You know, like there are definitely countries where I can go and I pass and, and my white friends don't. But it it's yeah, it, it is a really sensitive and interesting issue that I think I finally trace back to this idea of recognizing the sacrifices that my family made for us to be here. I'm, I'm really glad that you've mm -hmm had the time to reflect on that 
so that you you can say that in like a forum like this to help all of us learn more. You know, I tr- I've traveled the world so many times. I've been to so many places. And the more I see the world, the more I'm just like, how can we bitch? I don't understand why we bitch so much. Like, I just was in Nepal. And the fact that I can even just come home and have a flushing toilet with sewage that goes into a pipe and that I have warm water and I can drink out of the faucet, you know? So it's just having context of that. And then... It- having to sacrifice everything that you know just to come to this country. And and of course, yeah. you know, all this political stuff going on right now. Really wanted to take the time to talk about that because I just think on, also on social media right now, everyone is just blaring so many bad negative things all the time. And it's just like, have you all lost perspective? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it's I understand why some things need, yeah, there's some things that are just like you said, inherently wrong that as a culture, as a society, we need to work on. But overall, Mm -hmm. we are in such a better place than so many places around the world. And I think that we need to keep remembering that and have perspective on it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So just to talk about what your parents had to go through, like two PhDs and your mom also has a PhD. Mm -hmm. Like that's three PhDs. (laughs) Yeah. For two That's people. Mind blowing. Yeah. For two people. Yeah. Just to make it in this country. Like that is yeah. wow. I yeah. hope to meet your parents one day. They saw they're great. Incredible. I love them. <laughs> yes, they are wonderful. Awesome. Well, let's get back to you. So yeah. thank you for taking me on that journey through your past. Of course. I, mm-hmm. I love that we did that. But let's get back to you. So as you were getting older. You just mentioned a little bit that your one of your only options was to become a lawyer and that you started to go down that. So mm-hmm. let's pick up the story from there. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it was I had endless options. I have that privilege. But from my perspective, I only had a couple of options. Right. And I think that perspective is even more important than the reality. So anyway, I was full into this trajectory. I was on constitution team, bronze medal nationalists, blah, 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 blah. National champions, non-nationalists, bronze medal national champions. And I started volunteering at the zoo because I needed community service hours for, for high school credit for the international baccalaureate program. And, you know, I loved the zoo as a child. My dad and I would go all the time. My family would go all the time. Obviously, children have a have a, you know, an innate connection to animals. And we can talk about how and why society tries to grow us out of that. But it seemed like a really great opportunity to do something a little different. But I never thought like, oh, this is going to be a deviation from my path. And then as I kept going in zoo teams in year two, three, four, I just fell more and more in love with the program and not just the animals, but the people who worked at the zoo. Like I never met people like that who wanted to solve a problem so much bigger than themselves. And he wanted to do something that was like actually world changing. And it wasn't just about like winning, you know, it was about something that is that is global in in scope. And so I love that big picture thinking. I loved how I felt when I was at the zoo. I wasn't a super popular kid in high school. And I had a, I have a lot of friends, but I, I wasn't a leader in my high school. And so I got to reinvent myself at, in zoo teens. And I became a leader in the program. And it just gave me a space where I felt authentically myself. 
And so I, you know, despite all of that, applied to and got into Claremont McKenna College, which is a heavily government econ school college. And it wasn't until I got there on the first day that I decided to change my major to biology because the day before I left the zoo and, and had this, you know, this incredible moment of self-awareness that I needed to find my way back there someday. And I didn't know how that looked. It wasn't clear to me how you work at a zoo necessarily or, or what the different jobs are. Turns out it wouldn't have mattered because all the jobs I've had have not been held by anyone else before. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but it, I changed my major to biology because I figured that was probably a good place to start. And Claremont was not a positive experience for me. The school was incredibly challenging in a good way. Like the academics were rigorous, but I really struggled to find my community there because it generally, it seemed like a lot of the the passions and identities of the people who were there did not align with my own. And so it was a really tough four years. And at the end of it, I took a little break. I went to, I was trying to figure out how to enter into the zoo world still every single summer going back, you know, every single summer of Claremont going back and working at zoo camp, which was like unheard of for a lot of the students there who are doing internships in investment banking and, you know, et cetera. And I'm going home and working at a camp, but that really helped me hone my ideas of what was happening in the zoo and aquarium world and how I wanted to change it. So when I graduated, I went to, I decided, you know, I really need to figure out whether I'm going the animal route or the, or the people route. I have this degree in herpetology or in in biology and no classes to speak of in education, not a single one. Right. So let me explore some of this and see what it might look like in a year off. So I went to the Smithsonian, to the National Zoo. I did an animal behavior internship. That was super fun, studying naked mole rat behavior, really loved it. And then did a half a year at outdoor school, an arowana outdoor school here in Oregon, a program I'd gone to as a sixth grader and loved and and really loved it. You know, I loved both sides. And so I decided to apply to, I think, 18 graduate programs. Do not recommend, but <laughs> don't do that. You know, the, the fascinating part was that I got into every single education program and none of the biology programs, despite having a degree in biology. If that's not right? a sign, then I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, that was like the universe shaking me and, and saying, you know, can we make this any clearer for you? And so, you know, all these all these folks who were largely men, white men working in these biology departments, not not exclusively, but largely, what I heard over and over again was, well, most of your experience is in zoos, and that doesn't count. And that was like, what? And I, I think I'd like to think that has changed now. But it was a bummer. So that's the scientific word for it. It was a bummer. And so I ended up choosing the Yale School of Forestry, which is another story. I had gone when I was living in DC, I'd been going to these idealist career fairs or whatever for to find out more about grad schools. And I found out about the Harvard School of Education. And I thought, you know, maybe my parents will accept this career path. Maybe they'll they'll support me in this, you know, in this direction if I go to Harvard and I can prove to them that I can go to a big school like they always wanted and still study what I want. And so Harvard was going to be at an idealist fair. And I went and there was a long line to talk to the folks from Harvard, but there was no line to talk to 
or it just there was a pause in the in the rush for the Yale School of Forestry. And so I just turned around and started talking to the representative and everything she was saying. I was like, wait, this is awesome. Like this program sounds amazing. And I didn't even talk to Harvard that day. I just took the Yale information and left. They sent mail to my my house. My dad called and was like, are you thinking about this program? It looks really great. And I was like, yeah, I am. What do you think? And he was like, sounds awesome. So and contacting my advisor, Susan Clark, I was living in DC at the time. And, you know, I'd been emailing all these people to ask them, like, do you have space in your lab? Do you think that what I study would be represented? Like, do you want to work with me and getting so much rejection? And then Susan emailed me and was like, yeah, you sound great. It sounds like a perfect fit. You should come down, come up, whatever, come up and visit. <laughs> so I like, walked, you know, three miles to the train station and literally in the snow and took myself to Connecticut and, you know, met with her and it was a great fit. But Yale, Yale was a really big pivot point in my career when I started to think about. Let's, let's, yeah. let's keep going. Let's yeah. keep going. So it sounds like you said that was the big pivot. So mm -hmm. what about it felt so good that you knew this is what you needed to do? And then yeah. What did you end up studying with Susan? Yeah. So in my year off, I also had the opportunity to intern for the zoos at the time director, Tony Vecchio. And that came about because I was hanging out at the zoo like I often do and was hanging out with my zoo team supervisor. And she was talking to me about my, my goals, my hopes, my dreams, you know, whatever. I was helping her stuff envelopes. And... I told her, you know, I really want to be a zoo director someday. And she was like, well, have you ever met Tony? And I was like, oh, my God, I couldn't. He's too famous. So <laughs> she was like, okay, come upstairs with me. Like, I need to get something from the printer up there. And so we went upstairs and she literally pushed me into Tony's office, yells, this girl's going to take your job one day and slams the door behind me. And Tony, to his That's amazing, I know, to his infinite credit. And he's, I call him zoo dad now, because, you know, he's still such a huge influence on my career. He just looked at me and said, why don't you take a seat and, and tell me, tell me who you are. And at the end of that conversation, he goes, you know, I've never done this before. But let's see what happens. Would you like to intern for me? And I was like, would I ever? So we had to like go downstairs to the volunteer office. And he had to be like, what if I want an intern? Specifically this one. Can we do that? Um, what are the rules? <laughs> yeah. And, and so one of the tasks he had me doing was answering the letters from people who, I mean, I called it the hate mail, but the letters from people that were like, you should set all the animals free and you don't do anything for wildlife, you know. So very firsthand experience with the critique of zoos that, that was out there. And so I remember going to my ed director, Ann Warner, at the time and saying, you know, don't we have data for this? Like we should have data that I can use to tell these people off basically, you know, to, to demonstrate our impact. Like, and she let's was, have a conversation. Yeah. And she was like, well, that might be a really good thing to do your master's. And so that set me on the course of evaluation, which at the time was not a new concept, but it was definitely burgeoning. There were definitely, you know, some amazing people like Vicki Searles and Catherine Owen working on it in zoos and aquariums, but it wasn't pervasive. And so I, you know, when I went to Yale, I, I told Susan, I wanted to work on educational evaluation in zoos and aquariums. And she was super interested in that she was a large is a large carnivore ecologist, um, who does a lot of policy sciences. And so our, our interests intersected and had done a lot of work in zoos um, over her career. 
but she was excited about this idea of evaluation, impact evaluation. And so my master's project, which would definitely not fly as a master's project today, was just straight up an evaluation of zoo camp at the Oregon Zoo. Just a straight survey done with fourth (laughs) graders to measure attitudes and knowledge. I'm like, that's it. But at the time, that was like, whoa, cool, you know? And so... And yeah, but the community at the forestry school was so incredible. I'm still super close with with several of my friends there. And I'm so proud to see what they've done in the field. And I had, you know, one best friend, Raywin Grant, who is a carnivore ecologist now, and we navigated the crazy world of being the only two wildlife people (laughs) together. So I just, it's again, comes down to community. I loved that community. I love the people. I love that Yale creates this world where you don't worry about grades. There's no very little competition. You graduate with a 0.00 grade point average, no matter what you do. I really appreciated that. And I also got the opportunity while I was there to study with Stephen Keller, who, if you're a social scientist or a conservation psychologist, that name might ring a bell. He was an incredible scientist who really, you know, broke open everything, (laughs) a lot of what we know about how people interact with animals and the human nature connection. So he actually introduced me to his PhD student, Nicole Ardwin, who was at Yale at the same time as me. And she graduated my first year and got a professorship at Stanford. And we stayed in touch the whole time. And when it came time for me to think of next steps, I decided to go. And that time I only applied to one grad school. I decided to go to Stanford to study with her. So that's... I. Yale also gave me the most wonderful PhD advisor I could have asked for and the opportunity to head back West and do my PhD at Stanford. Wow. Can, so one, that was beautiful. That was hmm. awesome. This how all the pieces just fell together exactly as they should. Yeah. So let's talk more about that. How exactly did you connect with her at Stanford and how did that conversation go? Will you be my PhD advisor? Mm -hmm. Like if there's anybody listening that might be thinking about that, how did you go about making that connection for her to pretty much take you under her wing for the next big step in your life? Yeah, I feel like I do consults for people like at least once every two weeks on like, should I do a PhD? And it's it's such a rich topic area. There's so much to discuss there. But yeah, so I met Nicole when she was a student. So I met her through Steve. He email introduced us and we started talking about her research and my interests and what aligned. And, you know, I had in my mind all these folks that I talked to in that first round that were dismissive, that were, you know egotistical or power hungry or whatever. And Nicole, just talking to Nicole was none of that, right? She was young. She was bright. She, she is all these things still, you know, and, and she would listen to the things I had to say and she was excited about them. And so when she got the professorship, I, I said, I, you know, I'd be really interested in considering a PhD with you. And we worked together on my application for a while. Because she was a new professor, I was her first student ever. And PhDs are not like regular school, right? So this is my my advice to people always is don't pick the school, pick the program, but most importantly, pick the advisor. I got really Mm. lucky that my ideal advisor was also at my ideal school. But, you know, what you need to do to pick a PhD program is read as much as possible and see who is publishing in the areas that you're interested in. Who is publishing things that you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. 
I want to do that, right? Or, or I want to yes and that to this next level. And then they may not be taking students, but they may know someone else who was. When I applied to Stanford, that was my second time applying to the School of Education. I got rejected the first time because the, the advisor wasn't right, right? And and I ended up meeting the advisor that I would have gone with. And he, we, you know, talked a lot. And he was like, I'm so glad you made it here. I thought you were a great candidate. You just weren't studying what I'm interested in. So I'm so mm. glad you found Nicole and Nicole found you and, and now you're a, a great match. And I agree. I it would have been a totally different experience if I hadn't a, if I'd worked with a different professor. You and your master prof your major advisor, I mean, maybe this isn't true for everyone, but this is my experience. You work together so closely. And, you know, I still talk to Nicole all the time and and a lot of my connections that I made through my PhD with the North American Association for Environmental Ed or are because of her. And and you could say Dragonfly was because of her too. She connected me to a friend who connected me to Dragonfly and that's how I started teaching for them. And I went into my PhD and told Nicole, you know, I want to be out of here in four years and I want to get a job in a zoo or aquarium, not in academia. And she, the reason she was such a perfect advisor for me was she heard those things and said, okay, let's make it work. Right. She wow. didn't, try, yeah, she didn't try to push me into her own areas. You know, she had an incredible way of redirecting me without making me feel like I was getting told no, but in a way that made me excited for the new directions. And we really navigated that together, right? As her first PhD student, it was her and I for a couple of years just trying to figure out like, wait, what is the qualifying process here? Okay. <laughs> hmm. Well, what does that mean? Can you read the guidebook and tell me, you know, or whatever, but it was so fun. And, you know, there are so many parts of the PhD that are designed to kind of break you down and reform you into a new researcher or, or a new, you know, a new thought leader. There are so many parts that are devastating and crushing and soul sucking, but interacting with Nicole you know, doing my research, working on the stuff that I loved working on was never, never part of it. And we would laugh about the other parts, right? Like a professor would fall asleep in the middle of a lecture or like a talk I was giving and Nicole and I would just laugh <laughs> about it later. Like, hmm, yeah, okay, well. <laughs> so, you know, you said it's been a, a straight line. I want the people who are listening to know that it is only in the retelling that it seems like a straight line, right? There are right. so many times in my career that I've thought that I was done, that I thought that I wasn't going to make it to the next step, that I had been told no in a way that made me doubt everything I you know, believed in. I have so many rejections under my belt. It is, you know, I'm an educator. I can weave together a pretty narrative of a story with themes and a moral at the end. But I think, you know, it's really important for people to know that it was not a straight line. And there were a lot of bumps along the way. And it was all about finding the right people at the right time, and being unrelenting in what I wanted to achieve. Once I had kind of narrowed down my personal mission, at least in saying like, I'm interested in zoos and aquariums, conservation, and I think there's something to this people stuff. That's and I kept beating that drum over and over. You finally find the people who care about what you care about, and hopefully they'll help you along your path. Yeah, thanks for that. Perspective is so important. 
And so did you experience that like as you were going into your PhD or was it into your master's? What was like a defining moment when you felt that, that it was whether it was imposter syndrome or whatever it was that you had to get over? I mean, there are a couple. So it, as much as I love the community at Yale, it definitely awoke me to this idea, awakened me to this idea that zoos and aquariums are often popular with uh, our communities, but sometimes unpopular with the environmental world. And that was weird, you know, because I was here with all these people who cared about the same things I cared about. And I would have people say like, but how do you do that at a zoo? That's like, that's what seems weird to me, you know, and, and having to mm. defend where I worked all the time to these folks that I thought should know, should understand was really eye opening. And then when I got to my PhD, you know, my first year, I was taking all these required classes for the School of Ed that were about K through 12 math and reading, you know, in school. And that's a, you know, it's a gross oversimplification, but it, it was a pretty traditional education program. And saved Nicole's class, I was studying things I did not care about at all. Like, I love that there are people working on charter school stuff. I did not want to write like a 10 page paper on charter schools, but I had to. <laughs> and so I went to Nicole and I was like, I don't know that this program is right for me. Like, I don't know that this is what I should be doing. I maybe I should just go back and work in the field. Like maybe I should forget this PhD and just go do practice. And she had me start a folder in my computer on my email and she would send me jobs that require at zoos and aquariums that required phds and she was like save all of these save these so that when you doubt whether this is the right path you go back and look at those job descriptions and ask yourself but is this a job i want someday and the answer was always yes the answer like these jobs are so exciting that it gave me a focus and gave me a way to kind of cut through the noise and realize what i wanted to do and I think that's the other big piece of how I approached my degree was that I saw the PhD as an exercise in research. I saw it as a training tool, not as the culmination of all of my work. I had a good friend in my program. He and I used to sit in the back of class and we were a little <laughs> bit of a peanut gallery. And someone asked, <laughs> one of the professors asked the question one day, like, how many of you would be here if you didn't get a degree at the end? And of course, so many people raise their hands because they want to be like all about learning. And my friend Dan, I remember, turns to the professor and is like, is there an option where you're only here for the paper? Because I think that's what Kathy is all about. And like, <laughs> it's not untrue, but it wasn't, it wasn't true. Like, you know, the experience makes you stronger. But going into the PhD was a lot about knowing that when I walk into a room, I'm not the person that people automatically think has those credentials, right? Like I am not, I, I present very young as many Middle Eastern women do. I wear pink and glitter and I love flowers and cute animals and Taylor Swift and kittens. And, and I, I, I don't care who knows. I don't care who knows. And so having the PhD helps me to enter. I knew it would and it, and it has helped me to enter spaces that I might otherwise be excluded from just because of the patriarchy or white supremacy or any of these those other wicked systems that exist in our world. And knowing that recognizing that seeing the potential that that existed outside of the program helped it helped me focus a lot on ensuring that I treated it as an exercise as a training tool and didn't get too wrapped up in making it like the absolute most life, you know, 
life-altering piece of research I would ever conduct. All the coolest research I've ever done has been way outside of my PhD time. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. Because I think too, I know I can definitely relate to this. And I'm sure a lot of women, or even there might be some gentlemen listening as well, where you feel like you have to be an image Mm -hmm. to be a conservationist or to be a scientist or to be in the field. You know what? I love traveling. I really like to wear mascara. Mm-hmm. You know, I mm-hmm. don't like mm-hmm. to look like a complete mm-hmm. slob yeah. when I'm in the middle of nowhere. You know, just yeah. a little bit of mascara is kind of nice. Yeah. But I used I'll to apply it without that. a mirror. But <laughs> exactly. And I might have things everywhere, but at least I feel more presentable. And mm-hmm. I used to feel ashamed about that. Yeah. Or that I I used to feel ashamed that I was more comfortable wearing just a little bit of makeup, you know, nothing. I'm not talking about dolling up and going out to the nines when I'm going into the jungle. But I so just thank you for bringing that up. So just anybody listening like that's you can be who you are, even in this field where you're Mm -hmm. supposed to be this one image of khakis and a quick dry button up and like staring at a like piece of paper and, mm-hmm. you know, a clipboard. And that's the only way that you can be a scientist in mm-hmm. conservation or zoos or aquariums or anything like that. So yeah. yeah. Good yeah. girl. I love my, glitter and pink as well. <laughs> my field clothes are super cute. I have taken a lot of care in curating a field wardrobe that is both functional and adorable. I don't like wearing <laughs> pants. And so I have a lot of options that don't require me to wear pants. Uh, nice. a lot of skirts and dresses and tights and things like that. Oh, yeah. I need to take some tips from you. <laughs> Definitely need to take some tips from you. <laughs> oh, that's great. So I know you saw like so many amazing things that you've studied after your PhD, but what was your PhD? Like what did mm. you study and, yeah. and put out there in the world? Yeah. So still being really interested in evaluation and seeing it as a need in the field and also something that I was interested in. I became curious about this component of evaluation that was the the human side of why it doesn't happen, right? So not just about the the theory of evaluation or, or anything, but the emotionality of it. Why don't people evaluate? What what are those what what makes them lack confidence? Where why don't they have the resources they need? And there are the resources out there. So why aren't they accessing them? So I combined the communities of practice framework with methodologies from social, from social network analysis to study the diffusion of innovation amongst zoo and aquarium educators related to evaluation. So to break that down, <laughs> what that means is, why do evaluation practices happen in some places and not others? Who do people talk to? Why do they talk to those people for those things? Where do evaluation conversations happen? Do they happen on purpose or on accident? What are some of the motivators for learning how to evaluate? And what are some of the reasons why people say that they aren't capable, quote, in heavy quotes, of doing evaluation? So I had my study group was like 50 zoo and aquarium leadership professionals. So that was intentional and got to have like, you know, long conversations with them about their philosophies on eval and then ask them, you know, who are the people in this community that you go to for help or you consider to be experts or whatnot, and then mapped that both, you know, quantitatively with the social network analysis, which is a super fun, I I really like that approach, and then backed it up with the qualitative data 
from the interviews mm-hmm. coded for the communities of practice framework. And so that, you know, the, the research was, and then I did a subsection of that at the Oregon Zoo with the camp program doing a single case study. I wanted to work at zoo camp, doing a single case study on one, one program. And it was, you know, I got to present back to the Conservation Education Committee, which led to me joining the Conservation Education Committee. My, you know, a lot of my jobs fell out from from getting to know people and creating a network and having those relationships based on work that ended up, I think, hopefully benefiting our community or at least shedding light on some things that had thus far gone unspoken. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're talking about it right now. So, of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's still going on. You're it's still, still happening. Without still- work, you're still able to... <laughs> Yeah. Every time I think I want to move on from evaluation, I get pulled back in some way, which is uh, someday I look forward to not working on eval anymore. Uh, But right now it's not the time. So (laughs) you're the expert. So it just makes sense. Somehow. (laughs) Yeah. So what did you do with your PhD? What was next? Yeah. So after my PhD, I did end up finishing in four years. So I defended my dissertation on the last possible day that you could defend and still walk in graduation at eight o'clock in the morning. It was the best day of my life. (laughs) And I don't you say that glibly. It was actually the best day of my life. My two best friends from Portland came down. My parents came down. I had friends from, you know, middle school, high school, Grad schools, undergrad, like all came and showed from the Bay Area, all came and showed up for my defense, which was again at eight o'clock in the morning. My, it's a couple of my friends from Stanford made sure that a big like breakfast book, like buffet was there. And so I had a public, public defense because I really wanted to share with people what I'd been working on and, and I like attention. So I. <laughs> did the like 45 minute uh, presentation and then everyone was kicked out and we did the, the, you know, hour and a half kind of debrief or questioning period. And then one of my committee members had to get on a plane and fly away. So we had a hard stop at like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. And then I, you know, I, I ended up passing with revisions and the rest of the day, my advisor took me and my friends um, and my family out to lunch. And then my roommate had coordinated a party with all my favorite foods and drinks at our cottage. And since it was like noon, we got to party all day and it was so fun. Like that's awesome. Flowers <laughs> were coming in from all over the country and like, oh, it was so, so, so great. Just, you know, one of the best days ever, really just feeling the love. So after my, my PhD, there were no zoo jobs open. I remember being like, well, crap, like, what am I going to do? What now? But I ended up going to the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. And I call that my postdoc because I was only there for a year. I struggled. I love LA. Like LA is like family where if someone else disses LA, I will get really mad at them. But I'm allowed to say all the bad things I want about LA (laughs) because LA is like a sibling. But I, I struggled with Living in LA, the museum was really tough. I I really wanted to be doing active conservation work with live animals. And even though the community at the museum was amazing, and I have so many friends still that I love so much from my time there, and the museum is incredible. I love visiting. I just craved the live animal experience, and I missed AZA. I missed having a reason to go to the association meetings and being part of the committees and stuff. And so I knew I had to get back into a a ACA institution. 
So a year in, I told three people that I was thinking of leaving. I told my advisor and two other friends. And one friend alerted me to a job at the Seattle Aquarium that was opening for an evaluator. And so actually, the the gentleman who was hiring the job, who is now super close friend, family, called me and was like, Hey, I have this job open. Is there anyone that you would recommend I reach out to about this job? Like, you know, you have a pulse on a lot of this community. And I was like, actually, I'm meaning to talk to you about that. And that's where I, so I was at the Seattle Aquarium for four years and love, 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 loved it. Just such an amazing job, such an amazing, you know, facility with so many cool ideas. Working on the empathy project was so transformational for thinking about how I wanted to evolve in the field and how I wanted to see the field evolve. I had a lot of support to do public speaking and grow my public speaking profile, which was super important to me. And yeah, I only ended up leaving because my one of my dream jobs opened up back at the Oregon Zoo. And so I still, you know, that that was kind of a, a rebirth for me to get that job work in that, you know, area and feel really like have an institutional home again. And so let's, before we get to the Oregon Zoo, so it sounds like this is where your connection with empathy really started to Mm -hmm. happen. Yes. Is that right? Yep. I would love if you could do a deep dive into what you discovered, why it's important, what does it mean and how can we apply it? Like us in the conservation field, whatever it is that we do. Yes. All the things. When I got to Seattle Aquarium, the bulk of my responsibility and my contribution to the empathy work has been to synthesize and translate what's been found in the in the research to practitioners. And so I am I'm hesitant to say that I ever did anything really new research wise in empathy, but having being a researcher with a PhD who also had a heavy, heavy dose of experience in practice really helped me to know what the practitioners needed to hear and understand what the researchers were saying and how to link the two. It was this, you know, great marriage of my skills and interests. And so empathy, you know, we define empathy as a stimulated emotional state that relies on an ability to perceive, understand, and care about the experiences or perspectives of another. And so that ties in very tightly with what we're trying to achieve in zoos and aquariums in a lot of ways. Couple that with the fact that empathy is a promising pathway to behavior change. And then you've got something that's really, really interesting to to folks in our field. So we have documents that are publicly available that have the six best practices for developing empathy in your programs. We have, if you Google my name, there are so many, there are talks and, and slideshows and, and classes that I've done on empathy that you, and my colleagues at the Seattle Aquarium as well, and Woodland Park Zoo and Point Defiance, there's a, a whole consortium working on these projects. And they continue today, we're starting to think about what's next, right? Like what, how do we start to think a little more about the research component? Where are our potential entry points into that work? And man, we cannot wait to get back on the public speaking circuit, back to workshops and training zoo and aquarium staff on how to use empathy intentionally in their work, because it is happening unintentionally all over the place. But where are the spots where we can really hone it and develop it into an outcome for our programs that we can measure? Mm. Yeah. And I can make sure that all of those links would be in the show notes for this as well. Mm -hmm. So anyone could learn more because it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just in our little call and just that little bit, you clearly have like, it's a lot. Stacks and stacks and stacks of resources. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah. Great. So your dream position opened at Oregon. What was it? And what did you go do? Yeah. So my dream, one of, you know, I don't think there's a singular dream position, but it was definitely one of my dream positions. It was conservation impact manager at the zoo. So my job was to create, implement, and evaluate our conservation strategic plan. So awesome. And it was so wonderful to be back in my home institution it was, it was everything I'd hoped, right? I was the zoo team who made it back to be on the executive team. I got to tell this story about being raised at that institution and, and now getting to work alongside those that had made my entire career possible. So wonderful. And then, co- and then COVID hit and I was, you know, I was laid off in the zoo's third round of layoffs, which was incredibly traumatic. And th- just sad, just deeply sad for, you know, the institution suffered so, 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 so badly in this pandemic. And it is devastating to see, especially now that I work alongside a lot of other institutions that are are struggling, but um, really seeing what happened at Oregon makes me, you know, very, it makes me sad because that institution has so much potential. And I do look forward to going back there again someday and helping them continue on their path. But for the time being, my my path took another right turn. So I was very fortunate within, you know, minutes of, of receiving notice of my layoff to be in conversation with some other folks around the country for some other job prospects in the field. I am willing to leave Portland at some point in my life. I know that that is a very important thing to, to consider, especially in this field where opportunities don't, you know, aren't often in the city where you live. But at this exact moment in time, I want to be in Portland. My partner just got into medical school here. My parents are here. And so I was very fortunate to be offered the job with Zoo Advisors to live in Portland and get to fill in a lot of the the gaps in my resume related to business and operations and strategic thinking and things like that and use my skills as an evaluator and as an advocate for our community to help elevate the missions of the of the facilities within our industry. So I, you notice I say fortunate and not lucky. I was using the word lucky. And then a friend of mine pointed out that it wasn't luck. I I worked very hard to get to where I am. And a lot of what I did was insurance. If anything like this might happen, I, I might have a place to land. And I'm very, but I was fortunate that it happened quickly. It happened in an awesome uh, company. And it you know, align so so easily with my interests. So it sounds like it was yeah it was hard for you. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah yeah for a lot of crying yeah a lot of crying. But this community, I mean, I was amazed, and I'm still so humbled by the love and and support that I received from you know my zoo and aquarium friends, also my my Portland friends, my college friends, well, grad school friends, I had flowers at my door within an hour, which was amazing. And they, you know, I, my love language is gifts. And I I told people that and it was, I have so many fun reminders now of the love that exists in my community. And on my last day, now one of my coworkers, Jackie Ogden, put together a goodbye party for me on Zoom with a bunch of my friends from around the the field that was like a celebration of your last day at Oregon 
and moving on to new things because you don't get that when you get laid off. Right? I didn't. You don't get the like, <laughs> hey, you did a lot. Yeah, you did a you did a lot for this Bye. institution. It's not you. It's us. You know. Yeah. And so that was a really wonderful way to transition and, and still feel at a time when I felt like maybe my time in the field was over. It was an amazing reminder that that was just not the case and that I still had a lot of support to stay in the industry. I'm glad. I'm so glad. Yeah. I, it's like when it happened to me, it was so immediate, so crushing. Like I didn't even have access to any of my files. So I like lost all my contacts, all my work, everything that had happened. Yeah. Oh, I went home and like drank like three glasses of wine. <laughs> yeah. And then the next day I was looking for jobs. I had a month to wrap things up and gotta do what yeah. you gotta do. I had a month to cry on every single Zoom call. So and I decided at one point that I didn't want to turn off my video because this is the real life impact of some of these decisions, right? And this is who I am and I'm feeling emotions because I, you know, the Oregon Zoo was my home and I gave everything to that facility and, and look forward to again giving everything to that facility. It just this time around was a little bit shorter of a tour than I had anticipated. Stupid. Oh pandemic. my God, I know. Yeah, because I was in conservation travel. So conservation travel. So yeah. One of the biggest industries that was slammed <laughs> yep. at once. <laughs> yep. Yep. But I think that's, it's a really important question for us to reckon with is why was conservation hit so hard? Like, if we think we are this necessary, if we think we're this important, and this is, there's strong evidence to suggest that all of this happened because of a disconnect in the human wildlife relationship, right? Then what do we, how do we move forward more productively now seeing how potentially fragile our work can be, but with a renewed sense of purpose and you know, intensity to our, our passion. I really don't want us to walk away from this thinking that we're going to go back because we weren't doing a good job before of, of making ourselves relevant to normal people, especially true for education, right? Making ourselves relevant to our industry. So I think it's really critical that we think about doing more, doing better, being bigger advocates for ourselves as we move out of this. How, I mean, this is more, this is more my own personal question right now. How do you think we should go about that? Yeah, I don't I don't think it's necessarily my answer to give. I think we are a very capable group. We're a very capable field. We would benefit from everyone's ideas if, you know, if they're all kind of in the same lens of, of how do we speak up for ourselves more, right? How can people connect with conservation? How do we make our mission a brighter line, right? How do we... I mean, and again, these are some of my own personal opinions, right? That if conservation is our mission, we should be living that in every piece of what we do. Everyone at the facility should be living that. For me, I think that, you know, we've been one of my lines that I use a lot in conversations or in, in public speaking is that conservation is, is a people problem. But I think everything is a people problem, right? I think this, the, you know, deprofessionalization of education is a people problem. I think the lack of Strong culture in a lot of conservation organizations is a people problem. So if people are the underlying force here, how do we elevate that issue so that we can really recognize how we how we shed light on the, the social sciences, on, on the social components of everything we do, and recognize that that is what underlies a lot of our 
a, a lot of our, our shortcomings, but also what gives us our biggest strength as zoos and aquariums. We have people that no one else has. We have access to people in ways that no other conservation organization does, right? So how might we really own that space and come into it in a more intentional way? I think we, I, I think we have kind of dropped the ball on that a lot. But that's okay. We drop balls. We just have to pick them up again, right? This this is our opportunity. Wow. I'm just I'm I'm rarely love speechless. And like, wow, I'm gonna have to re-listen to this episode again and again and again for like myself. Cause I know everything you just said. I just <laughs> I think that I need to sit down and think about these. Cause like one of the main reasons why, you know, I went to Dragonfly and why I took a more I took the people mm -hmm. route. Because I recognized it because I was at the Columbus mm -hmm. Zoo and I was in guest engagement and mm -hmm. I was talking to everybody. And I'm like, what is coming out mm -hmm. of the zookeeper's mouth? They're not understanding. Like these people that I'm talking mm -hmm. to because I'm on the other side mm -hmm. of the fence and I'm hearing what they're saying because, mm -hmm. you know, these people are with cheetahs and they're like, oh, and this person's like, oh my gosh, how do I get a cheetah? Mom, I really want a cheetah. And I was like, so nothing that's coming out of their mouth these people are actually absorbing. Yeah. And that was my yeah. inspiration and what's taken like me on my path. And when I went up to Dragonfly and then every single thing since then has been more focused on the people mm -hmm. side of stuff. And, mm -hmm. just, and even like the reason why this exists is, you know, Rewildology now is just exploring like people, amazing people like you and, and your stories and what you found. And Yeah. I think that I need to like do some journal entries on yeah. everything you just said because I feel like there's some personal questions of mine that I need to sort through. But the why, I mean, the why is so important. Yeah. Well, and there's going to be discomfort too, right? I think anytime there's a shift in a paradigm, anytime we welcome a new, you know, discipline into our fold, there's discomfort because we have to think in different ways that we're not used to thinking and we may have to allocate resources differently. And that is, oh man, that is really challenging. But if we start to think about the power of zoos and aquariums being in the people, that everything we do is to influence, uh, inspire, work with people, co-create programs and experiences and conservation plans with people, then I think we could really hit our, our, our stride, we could really hit some of the, the finer points of our strengths in a new way and maybe be more, more influential. Wow. Well, consider me an ally. I don't even know what that means yet, but I'm on board <laughs> and whatever way that means. And who knows, maybe in five years when I'm, when I'm a zoo director somewhere, I'll be like, I'll listen to this and be like, wow, Kathy, that was Nope, that was not how that <laughs> ended up panning out. But, you know, I think it, it's really important in this field to embody a growth mindset. And, you know, you can have an idea and you can run with it. And this is the idea that I'm running with right now. And but I am 100% open to that idea being proven incorrect, or to be given nuance and texture through different experiences or mm -hmm. perspectives. I think that's really right. important. Wow. Yeah, I have a lot of I have a lot of reflection I need to need to do after this, which is great. Like, that's why I love these conversations. Like I have not yeah. personally, cause I've explored just, yeah. you know, life circumstances. I've really sat down and thought and reflected about a lot of other things, but, and what you just particularly said, mm -hmm. I think I need to work on that as well. And who knows that might, 
shift my own trajectory mm-hmm. <laughs> with what you just mentioned. Hey, I hope it'll, I hope it would be something yeah. amazing. I know it would. So I, I love to ask this question yeah. to everyone that I chat with just to see what, what organically comes up, but, and you've mentioned a lot, but I think it would be wonderful if you could share one particular struggle you've had to go through mm-hmm. or that you might be dealing with right now, either one. And mm-hmm. just take us through that and how you got through it. And yeah. Yeah. So I long diagnosed and and long suffered from major depressive disorder and, and generalized anxiety, mo- mostly the depression part. I, you know, up through college and everything was unmedicated, untherapized, just trying to be happier and, you know, do things that brought me joy and all that kind of stuff. And I think that works for some people. But for those of us who are clinically depressed, I think it is really important to recognize it as a as a disease, as a condition, as something real that needs treatment and to be taken seriously. And so I've been medicated for my depression for a long time. It helps a lot. It is not everything. But depression makes it so that the lows are so much lower and the highs seem cheap. And so I think, especially in this time, right, when it's been the worst year of my life, worst year of so many people's lives, people often say, well, you have so much to be thankful for, you have, you know, your family and your friends and and this job and and all that stuff. And, And it is okay to both recognize that and also grieve the things that you have lost. Right. And, and recognize that when you are depressed, that grief may be more intense than other people can understand or that then you can even even convey. Right. And I consider myself to be an optimistic person, to be a positive person. But for me, it, it relentless positivity makes me feel worse because as a person who also suffers from depression, I often in my life wondered what was wrong with me that I couldn't see. I I could see the good parts, the silver linings, but I couldn't embody those or really feel, you know, feel the the light of them. And so I think it's, you know, that's a lifelong struggle. And I would like us to talk about that stuff more. There are days, many days when I don't want to get out of bed. I spend a lot of time just sitting in bed playing games on my phone. And until the last possible minute that I have to get out of bed and get on Zoom or whatever, it was easier when I was going into an office. I'll have really good days, right? And still come home and think, well, that really good day was one day and tomorrow's, you know, not going to be like that. And so it is, it's been a, it's been a journey because everyone's depression also looks different. And I think that's really important to recognize too. And there are a lot of good resources for if you are not a depressed, if you're not a person with depression for how to recognize it and, and work and love people who are depressed. What is it called? Hyperbole and a half did a really amazing comic strip about depression. And I show it, I used to show it to friends a lot, which with, you know, with this idea that like, hey, when you're trying to make me feel better, like this, this is what I wish you knew, right? That the answers that you're giving me are for a problem that is very different than the one I'm trying to solve, right? And though it may seem on the surface, like I'm sad about this breakup, or I'm sad about this, you know, job or or bad grade, or I'm homesick, like, it is not that is not the problem I need you to solve, right? That there is something underlying that that is far more um, nefarious. So 
Yeah, I think we don't talk about mental health in this field enough. We're starting to, but we are in a field where we are asked every single day to work on a problem that our lives will never see solved, right? And we ask ourselves to accomplish things that no human being can accomplish. And and we have to be at peace with finding a smaller, you know, smaller goals along the way to help us celebrate what we have accomplished. And I I think that's very important to celebrate what we've accomplished. But you know, we often do this at lower pay, less social capital. You know, how many of us have gone to a party or something and people think that what we're doing is so, so, so cool, but it's not quite the same reaction as when someone says that they're a surgeon, right? Or when someone says that, you know, they're, they work for Google or or whatever, right? Like, it's cool that we work with animals, but we don't get the same, and that's messed up, right? But we don't get the same social capital that others might in the more traditional jobs that our society values. And I think that's something we need to change too and think about how we change. Right. And and as just these issues that we've been talking about for so long are starting to be so obvious to everyone else, it's like, see, we've been saying this forever and you're finally just Mm -hmm. now listening to us. But even then, Mm -hmm. just like you said, the social capital of it, I have a lot of People or family members or friends are like, Oprah, tell them what you do. It's so cool. Mm -hmm. That sounds like, oh, it's just like a passion that Mm -hmm. you went down. There are days where I feel like I'm trying to save the goddamn world and you work at a bank. I don't care about your bank. If the world ends because nature is gone, then your bank doesn't matter anymore. So, you know, and just an overwhelming, almost like the world is on your shoulders. And I, that's why I always love asking this question. Because mental health has been brought up on multiple occasions when I've asked that. And I'm sure. And I don't know how many times you or other of my guests have had an opportunity to talk about it in an open, honest form. And you can Mm -hmm. say whatever you want. So, yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that, because I never know what anybody's going to (laughs) say. Yeah, of course. Awesome. So this has been so much fun. So, so, so much fun. Yeah. Do you have any like last pieces of parting advice that you would love to just share with anybody? I mean, I think for me, it all comes back to find your community, find your people, feed your community and let your community feed you, right? It is a two-way street. I happen to take a lot from my community this year, but I it is not lost on me all that I have received and I plan to give it back as soon as I feel ready to give, right? Or as soon as I feel in a, in an emotional place to give. I think that is what it all comes down to is for those of us in conservation, we work in an amazing field. For those of us not, those of you not in conservation, I hope that you know a conservationist or come to know one and respect what they do. Because I think there is a lot, a lot to be gained from recognizing the professionalism that goes into working in wildlife conservation or plant conservation or landscape conservation, right? But for us in the field, it all comes down to community. The rising tide lifts many of (laughs) the boats. That's beautiful. And if anybody wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way to go about that? Yeah. So you can find me on socials on all the socials i have a very specific name so i'm very easy to find on instagram i'm hi kathyune if you want to follow my art my art on instagram is otter and ink 
I do wildlife art and also jewelry because people contain multitudes and I have an artistic That's side beautiful. that I love to see. I didn't know that. Um, I got to follow it like yeah. right when we're done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Otter and ink. And you can also Google me and read, listen to some of my, my talks. I have a website, Kathy and Khalil. It's a WordPress. And I've linked a lot of my bigger talks to that site. And I've written some articles that you can also find both popular and peer reviewed. And like I said, my name is real specific. So and I try to respond to every email I get. It's really tough sometimes. But anyone who writes me, I try to make the time while I can to respond or meet or whatever. So I hope that you'll get in touch. Well, this has been so much fun. And thanks again for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.